You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Every week, it seems, the Pew Research Center publishes a new discouraging, maybe even terrifying report on religion in America. We've been told, for example, that all the major Christian denominations are in decline at greater or lesser rates. We've been told that fewer and fewer Americans hold to the traditional doctrines of the Christian faith, be they theological or ethical. And perhaps most disturbingly of all, we've been told that these trends are most pronounced among millennials who are seeing an unprecedented rise of nuns. People who, when asked to identify their religious tradition, respond none, N-O-N-E, not N-U-N. All this adds up to the apparently unavoidable conclusion that this country will be like Western Europe before it, post-Christian. I don't know many Christians of any stripe who aren't made at least a little uneasy by these developments, but there may be a better stance. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm your host for today's Christian Humanist Profiles, and our guest is Lee Beach. Dr. Beach is an assistant professor of Christian ministry and the director of ministry formation at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. He's the author of The Church in Exile, Living in Hope After Christendom. It's available now from IVP Academic, and I'm delighted it's brought him here today. Thanks for coming on the show, Lee. Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And I do apologize for saying our country over and over again. I know you're Canadian and not. <laughs> That's true. But, uh, and, uh, I, I, but I, I appreciate that. I am from Canada, but I uh, love the States. And uh, I think there's lots of things that we have in common, especially around these issues that we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. Well, your title features two words central to your argument, exile and Christendom. And I want to start with that second word. What, what exactly is Christendom and what does it mean to you that it is or is going to be over soon? Yeah, so, well, when I talk, I mean, I think that's kind of can be a, a multifaceted word to, to use, Christendom. Um, so what I mean when I'm using it, really, in terms of its, its uh, uh, use in, in the book, and as I think about it, particularly in terms of sort of the, the church in, in, its, in this North American context in which we find ourselves, is this idea that... Um, for for many years within North American culture, the church uh, found itself and and was quite comfortable um, being sort of at or near the center of culture. It was a, a, a an institution that uh, had influence in culture and in many ways kind of helped shape and form the the cultural consensus in terms of how people thought about the world and sort of our moral ideas, our ethical ideas, our sense of what was right and wrong, what was true and not true. Um, the, the church and Christianity as a as a as a as a worldview had a had a big part to play in the shaping and forming of, of, of culture, and the church was a was an important and significant and respected institution. And of course, uh, in Canada, that's less and increasingly less true. And I know to varying degrees, uh, increasingly less true in parts of the United States. And so it's that idea of the the, the culture uh, kind of moving from a culture where there was at least a, some kind of rough kind of kind of Christian consensus that kind of shaped and form the culture to a culture where that's increasingly less true and the role of Christianity as a faith and the church as an institution play a, a far less prominent role uh, near the center of culture than it once did. There's this undercurrent in Christianity to treat Christendom as kind of a bad word, the, the, the idea that if Constantine had only mm. not made it the official religion of the, the Roman Empire, and of course that's not exactly what he did, mm -hmm. um, that we would have been better off. You're not taking that stance toward Christendom. 
No, and you know, I mean that again. It's it's kind of such a such an interesting discussion to have, and it's an important discussion to have. It's not it's 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 worthwhile, and um, you know, you find uh, a, a, a varied ideas on on that. But uh, uh, I think really what I'm where I'm coming from is this idea that this is what we had. This was the truth. This was the reality of the Western experience for a long time, and now it's not so much the reality of the Western uh, experience. And whether that was good or bad or 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 something else, uh, it's it's uh, it's the way it was. It's no longer the way it is. And so, what does that mean for the for us as Christians and for the church today as we move into a very different cultural experience than what's been true for us at least in the last several generations? Wait, can you describe that cultural experience? What does this post-Christian world we're entering look like? Well, I think uh, you know, for that, that increasingly looks um, uh, like a world where we um, find ourselves um, increasingly wrestling with um, uh, cultural realities that uh, uh, cause the church to rethink um, or find itself oftentimes in, in the ways that we would uh, sometimes think or believe as Christians, increasingly find ourselves at, at odds with the culture, whether that has to do with, with uh, ethical issues uh, and moral issues, uh, whether, whether it even has to do with, with the idea that um, there was a time when um, the, tr- the culture even would at least maybe in some kind of rough way, and I don't want to over-glamorize uh, or make, the, make, the, make things seem too pristine, but there was a time when um, the culture kind of contributed to helping the church make disciples in a certain sense. I mean, again, as I talked about earlier, there could be a rough consensus that would sort of in some ways affirm the idea that um, you know, Christianity had validity, that uh, there was certain truth in it. I like to sometimes tell the story actually in a very, in a sort of a personal anecdote in response to that question. So I, when I grew up, uh, I didn't grow up in a, a family that went to church on a regular basis. In fact, uh, all my years from the time I was born till the time I was about 18, uh, I, I hardly, I can hardly remember going to church unless it was for a wedding or a funeral or something like that. And, um, but even as a young person, as a as a as a as a, as a teenager, I knew things like uh, I could say the Lord's Prayer. I I, I knew that Moses had given ten commandments. Uh, I knew that uh, that uh, that Jonah got swallowed by a whale. I, I knew uh, that Jesus had died on a cross for for my sins. And so that story still had resonance for me. Those those ideas were things that were part of my own experience growing up, even though I never went to church. And how I got those things was somehow the culture delivered those things to me, because I certainly didn't get them from religious education, because I didn't really have a formal one. But somehow I knew those things, because culture delivered that to me. And increasingly, I think that's just not the case, that we find ourselves as the church sometimes at odds in terms of our, our perspectives on life and what's true, what's wrong, what's right, as well as just this idea that we find ourselves in a culture where if at one time we were part of the mainstream and the culture could maybe even help the church in certain ways, at least had, spoke a similar language, we find that that discourse is increasingly fractured, I think, between you know, the language of faith, of, at least of Christian faith, and the language of mainstream culture. What do you think the lingua franca is that's replacing the church? I mean, if the church has been shifted from the center, what's moving in? 
Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting about that, and, and again, um, this is speaking from the Canadian context, and so um, uh, um, I'll offer that, and, and uh, our listeners can decide how much this uh, reflects their own context. Um, for us, what is probably unprecedented is this idea that there isn't one thing that's replacing that. It's such a, we live in a very um, f- fractured culture, a, a culture where where um, culture is much less m- monochromatic than it once was, where, where to define sort of this is the prevailing view is, is almost impossible to do. We live in a culture that's increasingly fragmented, uh, w- that's increasingly uh, segmented, uh, that, that's very, um, very multi, multicultural, certainly up here in Canada, and I know it's also true increasingly so in the states and so in a certain sense it's really hard I think to say exactly what's what's replacing that because I don't know that there is one thing I think that it's an increasingly uh, fractured culture and when I say fractured I don't mean that necessarily pejoratively it's just that the way it is that that it's it's not as easy to describe uh, uh, Canadian culture or perhaps even in, in 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 the states as much American culture as it once was um, and, and that of course is one of the challenges that we face that it's not just like saying okay uh, this is what this is what's changed now we have this and so this is the dialogue we have to have but rather I think we live in this postmodern age as in a culture where where it's characterized much more by 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 just um, by smaller littler cultures as opposed to one prevailing culture right yeah you, the, the postmodern images of the, the web where there's no starting point and no middle and no ending point. You just, the, the dots get connected in a million different ways. I think that's really true. It's, it'll be interesting to me, and this is kind of outside the purview of your book, but um, it'll be interesting to me if, see if, to see if that lack of center can really hold. You, you know, because I'm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure how many cultures, I'm no historian, but I'm not sure how many cultures in the history of human civilization have been able to not have some sort of central guiding force yeah. or institution well it's i think that's right i mean we live in this age and 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 um where we're where as many of many recognize this as as a kind of a, a transitional age or 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 a time where where the world particularly in the west is is changing in so many ways and and that's right i mean i think you know the, that often what what we what's key to culture and what holds societies together is some kind of some kind of prevailing narrative you know some kind of story that we all kind of and again in various ways and in different levels of buy in but there's some sense that we have a story that kind of is our is our story of under of a way of understanding the world, and um, um, you know I, I think in in postmodernism um, it's not. I mean, it's a postmodernism really at its core is a rejection of such a idea that there is such a, a meta narrative, as is often the word that's used, um, and and it's really about individual or small community stories. And you know, if that is what it is today, uh, I think you're right. You know, the the interesting uh, uh, movement of history will be how will that how will that how the, how's that going to work out? You know, will that uh, will that hold? Will that how will that shape? Our society in the years ahead, and and uh, yeah, for sure, I think that is an interesting question that maybe you and I may never see the answer to, but uh, certainly it's one that um, it's worth being asked. 
Let's go back to the uh, the major words here and talk about exile. That that word has had a number of connotations over the years. What makes it such a helpful way of thinking about our situation here in the 21st century? Well, so exile is a is um is a word that, of course, uh, most often I think people, when they think of exile, we can, you know, we have a, a really relevant or, or vivid, rather, picture of that even this in, in today in, our, in the news as we see what's happening in the Middle East and in Syria and all the, the refugee uh, issues that are, that are so uh, uh, much a part of the news these days, and we think of those people sort of being cast out of their land or at least forced out of their land, and we think of that as, as exile, or we think of a political dissident who's kind of um, exiled from their home, and certainly those are that's exile. But, but exile is another way to think about exile, a legitimate way to think about exile, is, is that idea of um, sort of, as I alluded to, of being moved from a place that at one time seemed like home and you had some uh, influence and control over the shaping of that place into a place where even though it may not, you may never physically be removed from a particular place or land, you increasingly find yourself with an, experiencing that culture, experiencing that place rather, in a brand new way. And so it's like uh, from moving from the center of things to the margins of things is, is, a, is a form of, of, of exile. It can be uh, a, a sense of dislocation, even if, you know, it's not necessarily a physical dislocation from, from one land to another. Um, and uh, as I said, I think that that's a fair description of kind of what's happening, has happened and this continues to happen to uh, the church in North America, in North America today. And um, I think it's helpful because, of course, that connects us very deeply with the biblical narrative. Uh, the, the biblical narrative is really all about exile. It's all about the reality of Israel experiencing exile uh, uh, in a very uh, um, a tangible way uh, in, in its history when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and later the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom and, um, and many Israelites were shipped off, uh, li- literally exiled from, from their homeland into another context, a foreign context, a foreign context very different from their own, where they no longer had the power to uh, kind of um, uh, uh, kind of shape their own destiny, if you will, and yet they still had to figure out, they wanted to figure out, what does it mean for us to be Israel? What does it mean for us to be God's people in this very, very different context in which we find ourselves? How do we practice our faith? How do we maintain our identity? What does it mean for us to live in this new context? And then, of course, that carries through. Israel never really fully recovers from, from exile. They always live as a subjugated people right up until the time of the New Testament. And we find our, in the New Testament that the church is really wrestling with the same thing. We're, we're a marginal people. We're not a people who are near the center of power. We're a people who are on the fringes. And um, we have to figure out what it means for us to live and to be faithful to God and God's calling upon us as the church to live our faith out in this very new context. So I think Exile is descriptive of kind of the experience of the church in North America these days, and it's also helpful because it connects us with so much of the literature that that is part of our story that that, that describes you know who we are as God's people in terms of that being the biblical narrative. So I think in those two ways, it provides us with a really generative paradigm to understand our place in in the in the world today. Right, and I think it's worth noting. I mean, exile was really the worst thing that could happen to a person. In, in ancient culture, uh, I, I teach English, and, and when I teach mm. 
Oedipus, um, the students sometimes want to see his being exiled as some sort of mercy because he, uh, because he's at least they're not killing him. But in fact, the exile is much worse because you can barely be a human being if you're not yeah. in the land you're supposed to be in. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, for sure. And that there, and, and that isn't. And you raise an important point on two uh, on two levels there. One being, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely the case. I mean, uh, for uh, in many cases, um, and as we even read some of the biblical literature in the Book of Lamentations and some of the Psalms, which are that are written in the exilic period or attributed there. Uh, yes, it, it almost sounds like the people as they're processing this experience, it almost is a fate worse worse than death in 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 certain ways. And yet at the same time, I don't want to use the analogy too loosely because for some people, the experience of exile is obviously a, 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 just a horrific experience. And perhaps that's not, you know, necessarily true for Christians in North America. We haven't maybe, uh, maybe our suffering isn't to, to in, quite to that degree. And so, you know, when I use the, that as a, as a way to think, I, I don't want to, um, to, to kind of diminish it because for some people, you're right, it's, it's a, a, a deeply disturbing experience. Well, I, I like the metaphor a lot because if indeed there is no center to Western culture anymore, it, it means everybody is kind of an exile mm. and Christians are exiles among groups of exiles. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, um, I, I think, again, that's one of the if, uh, some of the, you know, commentators on postmodern culture will really refer to this idea uh, that postmodernity is is a culture of homelessness. You know, this idea that uh, that all of us, in some ways, don't that that sort of idea of rootedness isn't isn't as isn't isn't the experience for many people in this kind of very transient culture. And when I say transient, it doesn't even have to be necessarily geographical transience, but this idea that it's harder to kind of find a place to call home and 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 a, and a way to think about this world. That, that sort of is 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 rooted and 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 grounded, and so you're right. I, I think uh, in a sense that's also another reason why I think the metaphor works is because it it does speak to this this sometimes experience of of transience or homelessness that that um, that sometimes postmoderns experience in in this particular day. And and if if that's the case, we have kind of an answer for it. I mean, there's this tradition going back to the Middle Ages and then the, the Christian existentialists pick it up in the 20th century, the uh, the homo viator tr- tradition, this idea that, um, you know, we're, we're pilgrims walking through this world, that if you feel alienated, if you feel homeless, well, there's a good reason for that, uh, which is this, is this is not the place you were meant to live. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, the end of Christendom in that sense may just be restoring us to the natural condition of human beings, let alone Christians. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I, you know, that's, I, I agree. And that's uh, well said, I think. And I think, um, yeah, part of in the, the last chapter of, of my book, actually, I talk a little bit of, of, of not, not just in the last, but in the last chapter, I kind of focus on that idea that, yeah, I mean, um, this, there is this idea that our, our, that exile in our story, exile is kind of our, is in, is in one way or another, our natural experience. And, you know, we don't really experience home again until, uh, you know, the restoration of, of, of God's kingdom on earth in, 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 a, in a tangible, real way. And so that kind of idea uh, is, is also part of the reality of our experience. And I think, too, as you say, we have something to say to it. You know, the central figure of Christian faith himself was an exile, you know, who, who kind of uh, entered into this, who came, who left his own home, as it were, and entered into the reality of a foreign land, as it were, to experience, experience life and to, in, to engage and identify with, with us. And so, um, you know, our, 
the one who we believe in and follow as Lord is 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 the ultimate exile in many ways. Yeah, and multiple exile, right? I mean, he in, in addition to giving up his or suspending his position in heaven, I don't want to be heretical. Um, <laughs> yeah. he, he was also driven out of driven out of Israel to go to Egypt, yeah. and then yes, the absolutely foxes of the earth and the birds of the air, etc. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and so there is that idea that you know we we ide- he, he identifies with us and, and invites us to identify with him in, in that in that very real kind of experience of of feeling you know away from home and sometimes marginalized. Well, you talk about the demise of Christendom as being more or less the result of natural social forces, which is probably an oxymoron, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, the exile of the Israelites seems pretty clearly to be divine punishment for <laughs> idolatry yeah. and injustice and all these other things. Do you think the Western church is also being punished for some lapse in our witness of the gospel? Yeah, that, well, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and it's, 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 uh, cause you're right. So, um, that's that's sort of the prevailing theology of the Old Testament that somehow exile wasn't just some you know it wasn't just a geopolitical happening that the Babylonians were the you know the the big kids on the block and they just kind of moved in and took over and that's as it you know that's as it would be expected but for for Israel very much the theological uh, I mean in for Israel nothing was ever just just geopolitics or it was somehow you know god's movement and they definitely theologized that somehow it was retribution for their unfaithfulness you know i i i've i've been asked that question and i thought a lot about that in terms of of how much we should understand um the, you know the movement of the church from center to margin as some kind of also divine retribution and and you know to be honest michael i i don't know you know i'm not really sure um how to how to fully understand that i mean i think we can certainly um look at ways in which um oftentimes uh that's sort of some of the ways that the culture thinks about the church aren't always positive and certainly the church has made its missteps uh, through its history in terms of um, maybe becoming insular and complacent and judgmental and, and not always acting in the way that is most helpful in, in, in what it's called to be and do in the culture. And so I think that certainly there's some sense in which, uh, you know, the place where we find ourselves is the result of maybe some of our own missteps or uh, inactions in, in the past. Um, I, I know this probably this whether this is a great answer. It's just an honest answer, and it's that I, I really don't quite know how to read that. I'm not sure if, if I'm ready to attribute that to divine uh, judgment, but maybe it is a form of justice in one one sense or another. You know what I mean? Yeah, one. I, I, I think there must be eras in, in church history that are where the church has failed worse than it is right now, and right. they weren't <laughs> driven into exile. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't seem fair if that's the case. <laughs> yeah, those things are sometimes hard to determine. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, it's a valid question. It's one of those things that, uh, that, that, uh, is worth us reflecting on anyway, but I'm not, you know, I'm not prepared to make a, a firm, a firm judgment on that myself. Well, fair enough. Um, let's look at some of the stories from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, t- tell me about Esther and Daniel and what they have to tell us about our relationship with a hostile or indifferent society. Yeah, well, that, those they're, they're, those are such great stories. You know, Esther and Daniel are stories we find in the Old Testament, and they're um, stories that are 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 clearly stories of people, individuals who find themselves in in um, 
particularly sort of uh, extreme exilic experiences, and they're written, I believe, to uh, were written to to offer the the people of Israel a a, a vision, a, a picture of what it could be like to to live faithfully as people in exile. And of course, the the beautiful, the fun thing, or if I think the beautiful thing about them is that in many ways, in the, in those two stories, we find two uh, quite different kind of uh, characters and different approaches. I don't know if approaches is the right word, but certainly different responses. So the way they kind of negotiate their way through uh, exile, they're both unique. Uh, Daniel, um, if, if people are familiar with the story, is, uh, is sort of almost the quintessential Hebrew in, 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 in exile in the sense that he, you know, he, doesn't, he refuses kosher to eat non-kosher food and uh, he, he, he uh, won't bow down to the, to the idols and he and his colleagues are willing to... Uh, and his colleagues rather are willing to be thrown into the, this fiery furnace in order to not uh, bow down to the to, to the idol the, of the king and and Daniel is is against the verdict to not pray to anybody except the king. Daniel is willing to he pub, makes public display of his prayers to his own God and all of these things that Daniel does they kind of demonstrate him as the this uh, this guy who's un, really unwilling to to compromise in certain in many ways his own faith convictions in the midst of of what is is a very uh, uh, difficult situation and where he's, his faith convictions are being constantly challenged, and yet he still finds a way to ingratiate himself to the empire and to ingratiate himself to the leaders and to to demonstrate how um, his faith uh, is actually the true faith. And as a result of that, we see several times within the book that uh, that the Babylonians make a, a response of faith towards Yahweh as a result of Daniel's uh, behavior. And then Esther comes along and. In a whole other way, uh, she is, she's um, this uh, this uh, uh, Hebrew orphan who ends up winning this beauty contest because of her ability to, to please the, the 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 king of Persia, and uh, and uh, that in itself has all kinds of potential connotations and what that means. But there she is anyway. She becomes queen of Persia. She mingles quite uh, effectively with, among among Persian society. She's willing to cook non-kosher food for her husband the king and to participate in all of the different trappings of, of Persian society and um, yet she too finds her way into the canon as someone who is an example of faithfulness in the midst of exile uh, largely because of her commitment to her people she's willing to risk her own life and put her own health and safety or her life in jeopardy in order to preserve her her people the people of Israel and so although she's very much ingrained in Hebrew culture or sorry Persian culture and willing to participate fully and wholeheartedly in Persian culture uh, for the sake of her own survival and the survival of her people she's offered as a as an example of faithfulness in exile because she's able to um, negotiate uh, the realities of living in Persian culture in a way that that uh, uh, is willing to compromise in certain ways but at the end of the day is ultimately faithful to God's purposes as they're being worked out in the midst of that Persian context and so they're very different and they remind us that to live faithfully in exile uh, isn't always a straightforward, easy um, 
uh, the easy response that it takes all kinds of different responses and that there's a lot of different ways to be faithful and that sometimes it's one thing, sometimes it's another thing, but living in exile is a very possible thing. It's possible to live faithfully in exile. It's possible to still advance the purposes of God in exile, um, and that can look different in different situations. Right, that there's this space for lamentation. You, you mentioned the Book of Lamentations. Right. And also a space for... Uh... Prosperity, I suppose, in the uh, in the unfamiliar land. Yeah, sure, and and again, uh, that really comes through in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah, uh, the prophet, uh, speaks directly to the people in Israel, and and um, you know calls them to to work for the good of the city, to work for the good of Babylon with that idea that uh, uh, as they work for the good of the city, they'll be blessed and the people in, in the city of Babylon will be blessed. And that, uh, that's, all, that that's a good thing. It's still possible to enjoy and, 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 and uh, receive God's blessing, uh, even in the midst of a situation that may not be the one that we would uh, you know, call, ideally want for ourselves. You also talk about a third book from the Hebrew Bible, and I'm not sure this is the first one I would have come up with, but you talk about the book of Jonah. What is that strange little text? Yeah. Tell us about exile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, Jonah is, 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 is also um, a, a, a story of, of advice, if you will, for, for um, Israel in its, in its exile. Uh, and, uh, and it's, but it, it's, it, it again is, is, is very different from uh, Daniel and Esther, and then again, uh, Jonah offers us this perspective as one who, um, as we all know famously, you know, get called by God to go to Nineveh and then flees in a boat to as far, tries to get as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can, uh, and then goes through all the that reality of being thrown overboard and swallowed by the great fish, and and then ultimately he goes to Nineveh and fulfills the mission God's given him, but he does it begrudgingly, and at the end of the book we can see he's not very happy about the success of his, of his mission. And I think that tale is there uh, as a story that's written um, uh, for, for Israel to see themselves through the lens of that story, to see themselves as Jonah. And I think it's a story that's there to speak to Israel as a people who are called to be God's ambassadors, God's witnesses, uh, that's their identity. It always was their identity, um, all the way back to, to the giving of the law was this idea that Israel was constituted as a people who would be a, a, a people who would show the world what it meant to be in relationship with Yahweh. They were called to demonstrate that. And part of their exile is, uh, is, is punishment for their unwillingness to, to want to see the nations uh, repent and, and come to know Israel. And they had lost their missional identity. And so Jonah is a story that reminds Israel of what its calling and its identity is. It reminds them of their reluctance to embrace that call and their, their, their sort of throwing off or rejection of that call. And then sort of, you know, Jonah's final kind of um, that uh, sort of petulance that, that he demonstrates after Nineveh repents and he's still unhappy about it. Uh, of course, uh, the, the final 
piece of Jonah's God asks that rhetorical question. He goes, you know, there's 120,000 people in Nineveh and all the, the animals and cattle. He says, should I not be concerned about them? And of course, that's the question that Israel has to answer. God cares about these nations, and he's called them to participate in this mission, but they, they have not been faithful in their participation in being a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles. And Jonah is an advice tale to exiles to remind them of their identity and to call them back to it. And I think, again, even for the church today, that's a great, has important, um, you know, it's an important book for us, too, as we understand that, that message. That, uh, um, and one of the great things I think are, or helpful things about sort of this marginalization or exile is that it calls us to rethink our identity and to, to maybe shake us from some complacency or apathy that stopped us from living into the mission that God has called us to, and it calls us to reengage with that and to think about what that really means for us. And, and you talk about that as, as creating a responsive theology. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what uh, I think uh, uh, the church needs today is this idea that we have to, to think about what our context is and, and respond to that and, and, and our theology and our understanding of who we are, who, what the church is, needs to come as a response to, to the context in which we find ourselves. You also deal with a set of writings much less familiar to Protestant readers of the Bible. Um, the the texts that represent the intertestamental, the Second Temple period. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how does the tone or message of those books differ from the Hebrew Bible on one side and the Christian New Testament on the other? Yeah. So what what we see there is um, is just um, a, cu- a couple things um, that, that 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 as it stands as intertestamental literature, as, as as you said, and it really does in many ways bridge those two testaments because we see a few a couple things at least there. One is we see that. Um, even as we move out of sort of the the historical time of the uh, of the of the Old Testament canon um, and into those years where in between the New and Old Testament, uh, we see that exile remains an important theme in the in the religious literature uh, of the Jewish people. Um, and in the book, I, I give some examples, and there's several more, but I allude to at least a few examples of how ex- this idea of understanding themselves as a people in exile uh, continues to be an important motif for, for those people. But what we also see is very much a responsive theology, as we just touched on. We can see uh, certain uh, themes developing in that literature that show that um, Israel is beginning to rethink and, and sort of re-understand themselves and, 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 and understand what their faith means in a very different context. And so we see, um, just as a couple of examples, we see the the rising of the the of the synagogue within uh, Israelite uh, religious practice and also just cultural practice, where um, once the strong theology of the temple as being the place where you had to go to ex- to sort of you know practice your faith and experience God's presence in a particular way, where that was once a strong emphasis now no longer as much as that emphasized these these new ways these new sort of religious places begin to crop up uh synagogues where where the faith can be uh taught and where community can be experienced and they begin to understand that maybe we maybe that maybe going to the temple isn't 
the same as what we thought it was, that there's other ways for us to practice and experience our faith and that maybe God is present just as much in these places. He can be, pre- he can be just as present in a foreign land as he was in our, in our land. And then we also see the rise of things like understandings of, of, uh, of the afterlife begin to em- evolve and, and emerge. And, and, and exile actually begins to be kind of, or the end of exile begins to, to be cast more and more possibly as sort of an eschatological idea. Um, and maybe after as time goes on and the idea of being restored to the land becomes, seems to become less plausible, we see an embrace of a theology that understands, yes, we will be restored. There will be a time of restoration. But maybe it won't be in this life. Maybe it won't be in this world. Maybe it will be in another form. And so this kind of theology also begins to emerge. So that literature really shows us that Israel is reflecting theologically on their experience. They want to be faithful to their story, faithful to their scriptures, but they're starting to understand that, that and, and apply it in, in a new context so that it informs and, and energizes their life and their faith as a community, again, in a very different cultural context. And we talked a little bit about how Jesus likely saw himself as a as an exile, being among other things a first century Jew. Um, but you you also talk about First Peter as being the kind of definitive epistle of exile in the New Testament. Yeah, because and 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 Peter partly because uh, to, uh, at least a couple times in that epistle, Peter actually uses that that concept. Uh, he talks to his his audience as exiles and aliens, strangers in in the land, and he writes to his churches there in Asia Minor and and uses that language. And then I think um, very self consciously um, wants to help his, the church identify themselves as being being a continuation or in the plot line, if you will, of, of, of the biblical story. Um, so um, he, um, in a small little epistle like First uh, Peter, just as a kind of a way to sort of see this, Peter uses uh, about 10 different Old Testament uh, references uh, in his epistle, which is, uh, which is more than any other sort of shorter epistle in the New Testament except the book of Galatians. And it's clear that what Peter wants his audience to see is that, that they're in this story, that this is their story, that they're connected to the story of Israel, and that actually the story of Israel is important to inform them of how they should now live as people on the margins of, of first century culture. That uh, uh, the story of Israel uh, gives them their identity, and it also gives them direction as to what it now means as a people who, who are in the particular context they're in. So um, First Peter, I think, is maybe the most self-consciously uh, exilic epistle, not the only one, but certainly the most self-consciously exilic one, where Peter is really saying, hey, this is our story. You guys are part of this story. Uh, this is your identity. Our ancestors understood themselves as exiles. This is how some of the ways they lived, and this is how it should also inform the way that you live in your particular context. And so again, in the book, I try and uh, you know exegete and ex- explain that a little bit as a way for the church in North America today to say, hey, we've got these great resources. We're, this is our story too. We've, we're, we're in this story, and we can appropriate these same ideas as a way to inform our identity and, and our response to the culture we find ourselves in. 
so it ends up being not an either or in terms of looking forward and looking backwards, but you end up having to look backwards if you want to look forward. Right. I think that's right. It's, it's, it's this idea of saying, yeah, you know, we can look back to, to uh, the resources of our faith as we find them in, 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 in Scripture, in our history, and, and that can actually inform uh, our, our journey forward. And, uh, yeah, that's a lot about what the book is about. Well, you suggest of that universalizing gospel that, that Peter promotes. You say, and I'll, uh, I'll quote you here, it is not that their theology had to change as much as it had to grow in response to God's new working. And I think you mean to compare that to a shift in your own theology on the subject of divorce, which I gather happened quite a while ago, right? Right. Yeah. Well, it, it's sort of a very thing that probably happens to most of us in our, in our, in our journey of faith that, uh, um, yeah, just to tell the story briefly, I I I, I grew up, or I, when I came to faith, I I went to a, um, uh, it was a great church and it gave me a lot of good things, but it was a fairly uh, conservative uh, evangelical church, but but not probably in that time about 30 years ago, uh, it was probably pretty pretty normal for sort of in the evangelical tradition, and it taught me a certain perspective on divorce and remarriage and i uh went then i went away to a, a bible college that uh, was out of the same tradition uh met a guy there who was a bit of an older uh, sort of a more mature student uh had got to know him a little bit and came to really respect him and saw him as just a great you know really i thought a a, a, a great leader and godly man and, and just a, a, a great great guy and found out that part of his story was that he had that he was um, had been had been divorced, and this really kind of caused me to really think about uh, uh, sort of my own stance and was this right was this appropriate and so you know as this happens for many of us as we as we experience different things as we go on in our faith journey and we encounter different uh, people, different experiences, sometimes that's what provokes us to, to, to just stop and go, you know, is this way that I've been taught to think and that I've always thought, is that the only way to think about this? Is, is that the right way to think about this? Maybe there's other ways to think about that. And that was coupled with one of my professors who actually also kind of one day in class just took some time to to invite us to reflect on, think about other ways to think about this topic of divorce and remarriage. And so coupled with my experience of meeting this guy and getting to know him as a friend, and then uh, having uh, one of my professors give me some other options as ways to think about this, it caused my theology to shift and to, um, to respond to some of the new realities that I had both experienced and was being exposed to in terms of my thinking. And it, that caused my theology to evolve. And I think to become a much more uh, faithful and a better expression of my understanding of that issue. And I think many of us as Christians um, can, can relate to that. You know, we've, we've had our understandings, our beliefs shift uh, in light of new information or, or experiences that we've had. And, and sometimes I think we're afraid of that. Sometimes I, I think that that idea of talking about our, you know, our theology changing scares some people. And yet it really is the way that it works. It's the way that it works for us individually. It's also the way it's often worked historically with the church, as, as we find it. That's one of the great things about the church, is that it's called to con 
be a contextualized being. It's called to contextualize the faith in particular places in which the church finds itself. And that's part of our history. And so here we are today in 21st century North America, and we're finding ourselves in a new context. And it's appropriate for us to engage that context. And if it at certain places causes us to, to have to reflect in new ways, on things we've held and believed, then um, we're not doing anything that the church hasn't done for the last 2,000 years, and 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 that's an appropriate, uh, uh, I think, an appropriate practice for us at all times, and it's certainly necessary for us as we live in this particular context that we find ourselves in today. And I, I think you're right that a, a historical perspective there can help us to recognize that that's not all bad. But you you contrast those two words, change and grow, and I wonder if that distinction just kind of depends on which side of the fence you're looking at it from. You know, one man's one man's growth might be another man's change, and I, I th- this question is probably too big for the conversation we're having today. But how do we decide which doctrines can stay and which ones need to go? Yeah, that well, that and therein lies the 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 the, the always challenging question, and um. You know, I think that uh, again, you're right, and 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 I think when when we when we engage in questions like that, of um, uh, they need they need time and they need they need good uh, they they're they're questions of on their own. Uh, you know, they're not within within the context of the larger discussion we're having today that becomes difficult to sort of. I want to you know, I don't know how you can sort of answer that without needing to explain about ten things in order to clarify, right? right. But. Um, <laughs> But um, I think, and and this is what I think, and and I think this is kind of what we have to do is we 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 have to be open to really re reexamine our faith, um, and and be bold and willing to to put things on the table. And and I, you know I want to affirm my own uh, what I would consider to be sort of historic orthodoxy. My I'm, I'm my own uh, 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 evangelical faith that uh, affirms those historic uh, truths, and so I don't want to take those lightly. But, um, you know, I think if if, if we're called to be theological pilgrims, if you will, and that means that we're we're willing to to examine our theology, to, to, to put it up to scrutiny, to hold it up into the light, and to, to wrestle with it, um, and not be afraid of that. Um, um, and, 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 and I'm not saying that I don't for one minute want to take lightly the importance for us to be faithful and to 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 adhere to the things that make us distinctly christian and and make us not just you know willing to change just because the culture is changing we should change well that's not what i'm saying but but i think we have to be bold with our faith and not afraid to 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 respond and to examine and to to search and to question and to and to dialogue um, in, in the belief that sort of out of that, um, you know, we'll, 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 we'll do better and not worse. I think the church is often afraid, uh, to, to change, afraid to, 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 you know, ask hard questions of itself and, and even of how we practice our faith because we're scared that we're going to move into unfaithfulness or we're going to do something wrong. And it's not wrong to have a health, you know, there's a certain healthiness about having some, some fear along those lines, but we can't be paralyzed. We have to, 
be willing and able to sort of say, look, maybe the truth is, is that we've, God's given us the Holy Spirit. He, we have this community of people, both historically and currently, who we can pray about this with, who we can talk about this with, who we can engage the scriptures with. And the truth of it is, is that when we do that together with sincere and open hearts, we're going to get it right most of the time. We're going to respond to the leading of the Spirit, and we're going to be in step with what God is doing. And, um, you know, we, I think that that's the kind of posture I want to enter into this with, um, believing that we can, we can do well when we're willing to engage uh, theologically and reflect theologically in community. And um, rather than being afraid that we're going to get it wrong, we should be optimistic that we can get it right most of the time and that God will lead us in that. So I don't know if that answers your question directly, but I think that's the posture that I want to be willing to take. And I think that we need to take if we're going to be faithful in this time of exile. Yeah. And the, the, that concept of dialogue and discussion comes up again and again in your book. And it's a postmodern concept for sure, but it's also, we, we shouldn't forget a pre-modern concept. What mm. we take to be orthodoxy was hammered out by discussion and debate over sure was. Yeah. the course of the centuries. Yeah. Oh, that's such an important point, Michael. Yeah. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the truth, right? I mean, that's, we have our, what we consider to be orthodox has been, was the, was the product of just that kind of, of discourse. And we would sit back and say, uh, those, those, those people who, who did that work for us, so many years ago, uh, they got it right. They 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 managed to 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 articulate things that we now embrace as being the true faith, and um, they did it right. And so we can be. I think we need to build on that and say we we can do it right too. We can understand what it means to live faithfully in exile and express our faith appropriately in exile. We can get it just as right as 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 those fathers did in in in, in church history and. And, and I want to live with that kind of confidence, not, 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 in a, not in kind of, you know, not without some trepidation and, and some sense of the stakes, what, are, what the stakes are, but with a belief that, uh, that that's the history of the church ultimately, is the church finds a way to contextualize itself faithfully, um, and we will too. Yeah, and you, I mean, you talk about confidence, but really it's a confidence in humility, because it's not us getting it right; it's the Holy Spirit getting it right through us. That that's exactly it. I mean, and we I think we have to. That's a theology we have to believe in. You know, we have to really believe that theology that the Holy God really did give us the Holy Spirit, and He really will lead us. And um, and and I mean, some, I think I think these kinds of contexts of of when we find ourselves having to respond to the challenges that are before us as the church, they really, really call out, do we really believe that? You know, do we really trust that that can actually be the case? Uh, which is probably a good thing in, in many ways, although it certainly can be scary too. Right. Well, the scary, the scary periods can be the most exciting. True. Uh, another distinction you make is between orthodoxy and orthopraxis, and you suggest that orthopraxis is going to be more important to the exilic church than orthodoxy. Can you uh, can you go further into the the distinction between those two terms? Yeah. So um, when it's kind of this idea that um, at, at, and and this is a, a I think a sort of a, a Christendom post Christendom thing is that um, um, in in, in, in for, for, for a period of time, and particularly when maybe we're in a time where, again, there's more of a cultural consensus 
um, you know, the church can afford to sort of have lots, have intramural debates about, you know, what's the right way to believe and what's the, what, what's the right way to understand this doctrine of the faith. And we kind of can decide if someone's really part of us or not part of us by what they believe and whether they can sign the statement of faith or put their name on that or, uh, you know, say, stand up and say yes to, to this particular set of six beliefs that you have to have. And, and I don't mean to diminish that and say that has no bearing or has nothing, nothing important for us. But what I, what I really believe, and I think, you know, is, is, is just becoming self-evident, is um, particularly in terms of the church's mission and culture, uh, you know, our culture, and this is certainly true in Canada, uh, they, first off, they themselves have no acquaintance with these discussions that we have about doctrine and theology, and they couldn't care less. You know, that's, that has nothing to, the, to, to do with them, or they have no interest. But what they are interested in is seeing what does Christianity mean in people's lives. Does it actually make a difference? Does it actually cause them to, to, to love others better? Does it actually motivate them to actually live lives that look and reflect the faith that they claim to believe in? Does, does, the, does our, the local church in my community, is it engaged in the community in a way that demonstrates that this church actually gives, brings value to the community because it's tangibly involved in actually doing things that are positive, uh, making our community a better community? That's the language that speaks. And I'm not saying it, it hasn't always been important, just because, because of course, it always has been important, just like I'm not saying that orthodoxy isn't important, because it is important. But of those two, uh, these days, what's much more important is this idea of what does it mean to be a Christian, and how does that actually issue itself in how one lives and how the church functions in, in, in culture. And, um, you know, again, from, from an internal perspective, if... Um, if we're too concerned with making sure that someone uh, can, you know, again, really can ex not just a, uh, agree with, but can explain their, you know, the, some of the, the, their positions on the doctrines of our faith, um, but not so concerned about what that's looking like in people's lives, then, um, then again, that's, that, you know, we're done. We're in big trouble. Uh, what matters to the world today and what should matter to us is you know does, does is our life increasingly start looking more a little bit more every day like Jesus's life and and is it being lived out in in a way that's 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 obvious and tangible and so that idea of orthopraxy um, becomes the language that matters I believe in the church today and for the world today is uh, what does our faith really look like and what does it mean and um, you know far more important than can we articulate our doctrine is can we live our doctrine and uh, again it's a tension between the two but the one that has to trump both or has to take the lead I guess is is this idea of the practice of the faith and without that, uh, the church will only increasingly lose its, its, its voice and culture. It seems to me that orthodoxy is an inward-looking practice as far as the, the church goes. It's the church talking in the back room amongst right. itself. And orthopraxis is, is out, outward-looking. Yeah. And, and 
you know, as you say, you you favor the uh, the the outward looking, the, the kind of missional, exilic Christianity, and I, I found myself wondering what you think of another vision of post Christendom Christianity, the uh, the so called Benedict option that's been formulated by Rod Dreher and other people. Do you do you think there's room in exile for a Christianity that withdraws from a world rather than engaging it? Well, yeah, no, not really. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I don't. I, I understand that, that that sometimes there's a place. There's well, there's a place for that. I mean, and and I do. You know, I I, I mean, I've learned and I've respected. I've uh, been formed and shaped in my own spirituality by by monastic spirituality and and the such. So I I value it in that sense that I realize that I guess I'm glad that some people have done that with them what their lives because I've benefited. From their experiences as they've as they've offered them, but that's I think an exception. That should never be the rule. That the church is is the people of God who, by nature, are are part of the God who is the God of mission, and that uh, the, that uh, while there may be some exceptions, the the the, the vast majority of the, the rule of the life of the church is the life of mission and of being engaged with trying to figure out what does it mean for us to be God's people in this place and in this time. And so um, I I think that uh, for the most part, that's really not the role of the church. The role of the church is to be engaged in its community. Jesuit, not Benedictine. Right, right. Yeah. And I value that. You know, like I say, I understand there's value in that, but um, maybe that's more of my, my, uh, that's a minority calling, I think. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and that makes sense. Is I, I think there has to be some sort of place for it because, you know, that that that's really, I think, in some ways, the foundation on which it's all built. That that sort of contemplative life. Yeah, and I mean, and you know, thinking of Jesuits, I mean, we know that uh, they've done, they did some great things in terms of establishing schools and and being missional. And so, um, they, they, even within that tradition, there's a there's a tremendous uh, uh, history of 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 of, in, of cultural engagement. Um, but that maybe I guess what I'm responding to maybe is more that sort of that that um, monastic or sort of that disengagement idea. And that's out there, not just not just uh, sort of like uh, in that kind of spirituality, but even within maybe more mainstream ideas sometimes. Is the idea that what the what we need to do as Christians is hunker down and kind of kind of bu- get in our bunker and and you know watch just make sure our you know try and preserve our kids from this terrible world that we're living in and preserve ourselves from this terrible world that we're living in and 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 you know try and avoid the world as much as we possibly can and um, I know that's not exactly what you're talking about but that mentality is one that that is out there. And it's antithetical, I think, to really what the church is designed to be. And it doesn't really work. I mean, I teach at a <laughs> I teach at a very conservative Christian college, and I see homeschool kids come here, and and they've been sheltered their whole life, and even in this environment, it it overwhelms them. So, I mean, right. What's the what's the alternative? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and there you go. I mean, those are that that's hard. That's pretty hard to sustain, isn't it? That kind of a mentality. It's pretty hard to sustain that uh, um, in any kind of real way. Which I mean, then, to, to 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 credit Rod Dreher, I'm not sure he's talking exactly about sheltering people. I think he's talking about no. setting up these pockets of of semi-monastic Christian communities in the midst of a larger culture that they're they're engaging with on some mm-hmm. level. 
Yeah, and there you go. And, and I mean, so, so those, right, and one of the great, so in that sense, um, uh, the move, the, 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 the new monastic movement, which is a part of the missional church kind of conversation, uh, is very different from that. It's like this idea of living in community um, as a way to sort of demonstrate the, 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 the vitality of Christian community, but it is also this idea of being deeply engaged with, with, um, with, with community or with your, your, your larger community. Well, um, here's a more personal question. <laughs> what uh, role do you think that Christian institutions of higher education, like the ones we're both employed at, uh, what role are they going to play in post-Christendom Christianity? Well, yeah, we talked earlier about good, good questions that that are are that we we're going to wrestle with, and we're in the midst of trying to figure that out. I know at our institution, as I'm sure you are too, and um, we. Uh, we, I think we still, we, I think we have a, a, an important role to play, but certainly it's a time of transition. It's a tra- we're in a time where we're trying to figure that out. Um, work, working in a seminary, we live in a world, or work in a, you know, an industry, if to call it that, which is certainly not a growth industry these days, which I think is, you know, partly because of the, the reality of living in this new cultural context where the church in many cases is in decline. Um, but I think more, never more than before has there been a need for um, the church to be educated, to be able to think theologically, to be able to articulate itself and its faith in a way that is, that is uh, thoughtful and is able to engage culturally. Um, I think, you know, we need to be able to engage the world and, and uh, uh, be able to in- be people who are involved in all specters, all, 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 all parts of society. And so this idea of helping equip the church to think Christianly and to equip a, a clergy who are, who are, who are understand the reality of the culture and understand the challenges in the culture and understand some ways that we need to be responding to that. Um, I think that that, that need is, is maybe greater than ever. And so uh, the role of the, the Christian university, the Christian seminary, uh, in terms of equipping the church is, is vital because the questions are more complex than ever. And uh, the need for us to have leaders who are able to engage those questions, I mean, it's always been necessary, but I just, I don't see how that's any more necessary than it is today. It's, 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 it's crucial. Um, and so, you know, we have that conversation here at McMaster all the time because, uh, uh, we believe in that, um, but uh, it's uh, it's it's a part of the, it's a rea- the reality of, is that uh, um, the church uh, needs needs institutions like ours uh, probably more than ever. Yeah, I would yeah. agree with that. It's yeah, that's why you know certainly part of the reason why I do what I do because of my conviction that uh, that uh, you know equipping people for. Uh, we here we, we I mean we have a variety of kind of students who are here for different reasons, but as a seminary we're obviously looking at people who often are give, coming to because they want to be uh, vocational in terms of their leadership in the church. But in your context, like at a Christian university or college, um, you know we need people who can go into the world with a, with a Christian vision and a sense of 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 their understanding their vocation with some kind of theological content within a, some kind of theological context. And then uh, uh, participate uh, fully from that 
from, from that perspective. And, and uh, yeah, man, we need that in the church today, vitally. It's another Jesuit vision because yeah. <laughs> you, you learned the theology, Andrew. Yeah, and for sure. Well, I like to end these interviews by asking um, what your next project is. I know by the time a book comes out, you're, you've, uh, you, you've, you're tired of it. <laughs> so uh, what, what, are you, what are you thinking about for your next uh, major project? Uh, yeah, thanks, Michael. That's real nice of you to ask. Actually, um, the, the, the project I'm working on right now is actually with one of my colleagues, uh, a couple of colleagues, one of my, but particularly one of my colleagues here at uh, uh, McMaster Divinity College, uh, um, Steve Studebaker, who we've uh, we're, we've actually um, got a, had the opportunity. We got a Lilly grant um, not uh, that 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 enabled us to um, spend uh, about a year and a half, kind of at various times. Uh, visiting, traveling across Canada and visiting um, emerging kind of innovative kind of new congregations uh, all across Canada and kind of trying to understand what motivates them, how is this, how are they trying to respond to the, the, the new cultural context in which we find ourselves, and uh, what, what can we learn from them, and what, is kind of, what's the, what are the theological and philosophical perspectives that are motivating and driving them, and what are some of the, the approaches to, to, to cultural engagement and ministry that they're involved in. And so that's a project that, uh, that Steve and I are just in the process of, of writing, and, and, and hopefully uh, it looks like will be published um, hopefully sometime next year. Um, maybe later next year or early the following year. Uh, so it's, it's a book that kind of continues on in sort of the vein of, of the Church in Exile uh, book that we've been talking about today, but uh, looks at it in a, from, a, from a very much in a, in a rooted perspective in terms of some of the things that are already happening uh, in the church in North America today. It's nice when one project leads naturally into the other. Yeah, well, our guest today has been Lee Beach. He's the author of The Church in Exile. It's available now from IVP Academic. There will be a link to it on the show notes at christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>